We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome and thank you for joining me as we are going to finish up uh, our journey and our study through Hebrews with chapter 13 today. Um, you know, we have gone through so far 12 chapters of Hebrews and pretty much it can be summarized in this. I don't know if this is your first time joining us or if you've gone through the entire book with me as, as, um, you know, as we've kind of progressed through it, but essentially the Christ is, is supreme. You know, he is supreme as he has become greater than the angels, though for a time he was made flesh, right? Um, he was made like us in every respect. Uh, but Christ is greater. Christ is more supreme, specifically more supreme than Moses. And that's what a lot of Hebrews has dealt with, the, the, the supremacy of Christ over the law of Moses. And uh, we talked at length about that, about how the law, the Torah has been fulfilled. Um, that righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled on our behalf. So that when we come into Christ, we are no longer under that, as Ephesians 2 talks on. We are now under a new law, a new covenant through the blood of Christ, with the law of Christ. And that is primarily to love one another as he has loved us. And the example that he gave to us on that cross, we are to love one another as the church, first and foremost, above all. So as Galatians 6, 9, and 10 talk about, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. If you do not love the brothers and sisters in Christ, in whom you share the blood of Christ with, then... <clears throat> Um, I question your salvation because the reality is, is as he talks about here in first, first John three, starting in verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, meaning loving the brothers abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother or loves them less. Maseo is the Greek word that's used there. It means to love less or to detest. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If you do not love the church, if you do not hold them as supreme in your life, even over your earthly family, even over, you know, uh, and, and that's a different dynamic in the sense that if they are believers, then they are equal to, because they are in the body, right? <clears throat> but if you have an unbelieving wife, or if you have kids who are unbelieving, and you set them on a higher stage than you do the body of Christ and the mission of Christ, then I question whether or not salvation abides in you and you abide in him. Because that's what the word of God says. We must love the brothers, the brotherhood, the, those who are bought by Christ supremely. And so <clears throat> understanding that this new commandment, this new law that we've been given is to love one another as he has loved us. By this the world will know that you belong to me if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 through 35. And so this new commandment we have. 
all falls under love. And the, the law of Torah, for those who are in Christ, it has been abolished. There is no way around it. Scripture says what it does in Ephesians 2. We cannot look at just Matthew 5 outside and strip it of context and think that we come away with truth by saying that Jesus did not come to abolish the law. The reality is, he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And thus, when we come into Christ, we find the law abolished. For all those who are outside of Christ, you will still be judged under the law of Torah. That is the law of the flesh. We live under the law of the Spirit. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 is all about. So, that's much of what Hebrews is about. The other aspect of it is that we must not neglect this salvation that we have been given. Even after coming to Christ, we have a responsibility to not neglect the salvation that we have been given. We must take it seriously and understand that there is a just retribution for those who choose to neglect it, as Hebrews 10 talks on and as Hebrews 6 talks on. So if this is your first time, you have missed a doozy um, in our study through Hebrews, and I encourage you to go back, start at chapter 1 and, and the podcast that I've done, and go all the way up leading up to this. Um, if this is, you know, you've been joining us again, then we're going to continue on in this. In typical fa- um, fashion in the books of the Bible... In the New Testament, you're going to find that this last chapter is essentially a summarization of things that he recaps, as well as he gives us some of these these little bitty rules that we need to follow. I've heard many times that the Bible is not a book of rules. I'm sorry, you are wrong. That is something that is a misconception. There are rules all throughout in the New Covenant. Do not do this. Do this. I want you to keep your life free from the love of money. He says a wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. Or as long as he lives. I guess either way it would be true. Um, All these are rules that are given to us. And they are prescribed for us to keep us in God's will. Because when we get out of God's will there is chaos. So those who would like to say that the Bible is not a book of rules... Um, you're wrong. There are rules all throughout it. That's why he's called Lord and Master. And in fact, if you want to say that the Bible is not a book of rules that we need to follow, then I would say that you fit in the category of Jude 1.3 going through verse 4 when it says that there are many who creep in among you, who eat with you at your love feast, who pervert the grace of God and turn it into sensuality, denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There are many people who are going to accept Jesus as their Savior. But they do not accept Him as their Lord. And that is the only way into salvation, according to Romans 10, to believe and confess with your mouth that He is Lord. And lords give rules. Masters give rules to their servants. You see, we have rules that we need to follow. And as we get into this, you're going to find some of those rules. We're going to talk at length at some of those rules. And I'm going to con- I could continue on talking about this concept for a long time without even getting to Hebrews 13. But then this podcast will be a couple hours long. So we're going to get right into this after my little five-minute rendition at the beginning. He says, let brotherly love continue. There you go. You see the very beginning of this is that one of the things that he says. Let brotherly love or that f- um, uh, uh, is the combination of phileo and adelphos, Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphos. You, you get the brotherly affection. He says, I want you to have this tender affection towards the church, towards the brotherhood. If you don't have that, something's wrong. If you don't love the church, something is wrong. If you hold the church as lesser than your earthly family or than your job or whatever it might be. If you don't love the church, then something is wrong with your koinonia with Christ. Something is wrong with your intimacy and your, your fellowship with Him. Because if you love Christ, you will love His body. 
There's no way around that. So he says, let brotherly love, or that Philadelphos, that, that phileo love, and the Adelphos being the body, those who are born of the same womb, that Philadelphos, he says, let that continue among you. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now this is a fascinating one, and one that I can say just on a handful of times, I've questioned whether or not it's been an angel that I've entertained and the, the point is, is you never know when you're entertaining an angel or not. So to all, you need to make sure that you're showing hospitality, that you're being kind and tender-hearted towards all people. Just as I quoted earlier, Galatians 6, 9 through 10, do good to all, but especially the household of faith. Is you never know when an angel is actually going to be the one that you are entertaining as a proof, as a, as a test for you. He goes on and he says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let me break this verse down a little bit. <clears throat> Back in these days, you would have um, persecution spread abroad for anyone who claimed the name of Christ. And we're going to get into a little bit deeper on that topic in a little bit um, as we get into <clears throat> verse 8. Excuse me. But the, con the, the reality is, is that if you are a believer in Christ, you are going to be severely persecuted. If you desire to live a, a godly life in Christ Jesus, you would be persecuted, as 2 Timothy 3.12 says. And that has never changed. That has always been the same. What we've done is we've stopped desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Therefore, persecution doesn't come our way. And we just think that we're blessed. But that's not the reality because Jesus Christ and his message never changes. It will always cause the same outcome as it did for him. It will for you. But in this concept, he says, look, there's going to be many of your friends, many of your family, many of the people that you love and that are part of the body of Jesus Christ that are going to be put in prison. They're going to be mistreated. You see, this, this verse is oftentimes used as a prison ministry verse in which we need, don't forget the convicts. Don't forget the people who are in prison. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think that we need to. There needs to be prison ministries. But this is not a verse that is actually supporting prison ministry to try to go evangelize the gospel to convicts. This is not that verse. This is all talking about brotherly love and the unity of the body and loving one another as the body and not forgetting one another, but to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens. If you've got a brother who is in prison because of his faith, and you remember him as if you were the one who is in prison. That's the kind of unity and love that we should be having for one another. Read, read it again with that context. I don't know how you view this one in the past, but I'm going to tell you what it says, what it means. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. You see how that gave context to what he's talking about? He's talking about people who are in the body of Christ. People who are part of the church. And he says, when they get thrown in prison or if they are mistreated, I want you to bear that burden with them. As 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27 talk on, it says, those who, are mis those who suffer, suffer with them. Those who rejoice, rejoice with them. The concept that he's doing here is he's trying to say, I need you to be unified so what one feels, you feel. If they're mistreated, then you yourself feel mistreated as if somebody's come against you in that sense. If somebody's thrown in prison, I want you to remember them in your daily life as if you were the one in prison with them. That's the kind of unity that he wants in the body. 
He goes on to verse 4, and you're going to notice there's lots of little bitty tidbits that he's just basically summarizing up his letter and throwing all together for us to, to have and apply as rules. You're going to notice, if I were to go through, and maybe I should do this, every single time there is a rule, a command, which those are the same thing. I tried to have somebody tell me one time that those are two different things, and I think it's just semantics. A rule and a command are two different things. I'm sorry, are, are the same thing. They are not two different things. And maybe I should just go through and say, let brotherly love continue. That's a command. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's a, that's a command. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. That's a command. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's a command. You can't get away from the Bible being a rule book. Now that rule book is coinciding with the relationship with him. But we cannot get away from the fact that it is a rule book that he says, if you abide in these, if you do what I'm asking you to do, then you will be my friend. John 15. If you obey the rules, our relationship will be good, is what he says. And if our relationship is good, you'll want to obey the rules. It's a harmonious concept that goes together, not separated and too many people want to be like the Nicolaitans who want to say, oh, it's all about relationship and no rules. And Jesus hated their works in Revelation 2. And then a lot of people want to be like the Pharisees who say it's all about rules with no relationship. It's all about the rules. And Jesus hated their works too. So the reality is, guys, you cannot get away from the concept that it is rules and relationship. And don't be afraid to stand up for that because that's a biblical truth. Now, what is he talking about in verse 4? You look at the King James, it's less about what we are supposed to do and less about what God says. So in the King James, let me see if I can actually pull it up just real quick, if I've got any kind of service down here. King James says, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So in the King James, it makes it seem as though God is declaring something. And, and in the ESV, it translates as though we have a responsibility to uphold something. And I think both are actually true. I think marriage is honorable to God. It's a sacred institution that God instituted in the beginning. And I think we need to uphold that honor or that um, how sacred marriage really is to God. As Malachi says... God hates divorce, and the one who divorces his spouse covers their garments with violence against him. God says, you're setting yourself against me when you divorce. That which I join together, man, will not separate. Because Jesus makes that clear in Mark 10. In the beginning, what God joined together, no man will separate. That's what was stated. But in the law, Moses gave... Um, Credence for divorce to actually be allowed. And that's why Mark 10 is such a pivotal passage to understand God's viewpoint towards marriage and divorce in this new covenant. It is not in accordance with the law of Moses. It is in accordance with what he instituted from the beginning. As Jesus says, in the beginning, it was not so. Divorce was not an option. We've made it an option because we've justified not being able to carry a cross but Jesus says that wasn't how it was in the beginning. So I believe that marriage is honorable. And I think that we should uphold it to be honorable. And I believe the marriage bed is undefiled. I think God's declaring that in the King James. He's saying the marriage bed is undefiled. What you do in that marriage bed between a spouse, between a husband and a wife is 
honorable. It is not defiled. It is holy. It is sacred. It is clean because God has given you one another. Their body does not belong to them. It belongs to you and vice versa. So therefore, whatever you do within that relationship, inside the relationship is undefiled and unpolluted. And in the same sense, we also need to keep it that way. And so I think both are true. Whether you're a King James person or whether you're an ESV person or whatever it might be, I think both are reliable, trustworthy translations. I think both are true. God is declaring this as such, and we have the responsibility to uphold what God has declared as such. And then we get this, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. If you take something outside of relationship between your spouse, God will judge that. Don't think that he won't. That's again, that's where the rules come in. Because when you break rules comes judgment. If the Bible was not a rule book, then we would not be judged. And the problem is, is that in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says that we will give an account for everything we've done in the body, whether good or evil. You will give an account. So therefore, because we will be judged on the things that we have done, that means that we broke the rules. Therefore, there has to be rules within the covenant. And this is a big topic for me because I've heard from pastors from the pulpit who have said that Christianity is not about rules. It's about relationship. And I'm sorry, you're wrong. You are wrong. Both are included. You have to understand that. It goes on. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Rule. And be content with what you have. Rule. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now we have to understand the context of this passage. Okay, So many people make this a salvific passage in which it is not. Okay, And what I mean by that is that so many people want to say that this is about our salvation. That God will never leave us nor forsake us. So we are signed, sealed, delivered. Once saved, always saved. And I think Hebrews makes it really clear that that's not the case. Okay, So what is he stating here when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you? And here's what he is. He's going back to what he wrote in Deuteronomy 31 because the author here has a very intensive knowledge of the law. So I believe that he's going back into Deuteronomy or you could also go back into Joshua chapter 1 and find this same expression there. We're going to go into Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy, and I'm going to read this from the King James because I already have it pulled up. He says in verse 6, Be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Now what is he talking about? He's talking about this commission for the Israelites to go into this land, the promised land, and to go and conquer To be strong and of good courage. To move forward in their faith. When God says that he has given you authority, then you move forward in that faith. When he says that every every, uh, place in which your foot treads, you will have dominion, you go forward in that faith. Even when you face 75 foot walls in Jericho or even when you face giants, you believe that God is with you and that if he has called you to it and you move forward in faith that he will not fail thee, he will not forsake thee. You see, this is a a commission to the people to say, understand this. I want you to trust in God. And understand, when you move forward in faith, he will never leave you high and dry. This is what the verse is stating. Because I want you to understand something. Moving on in Deuteronomy 31, he talks about it in this, and I know where it is in in my Bible. Now I'm trying to scroll through it to find it here. I think it's in verse 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a-whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land. 
whether they go to be among them and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them. Oh, isn't that interesting? You see, when you use an Old Testament verse, you have to kind of know the context surrounding that verse and then apply it into the New Testament. You see, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. It has nothing to do with salvation. He says it has everything to do with trusting him. Move forward in faith. Trust in his promises. Trust in his provision. And he will not leave you high and dry. And this is taken from Deuteronomy 31 verse 6 going into 16 and 17. When we take it as a whole, he says, look, I will not leave you nor forsake you when you are strong and of good courage and you move forward in faith, trusting in what I said that you need to do. But then he goes on and he says, after you're gone, Moses, these people are going to whore after other gods and I will forsake them. But I thought he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Ten verses later, we find the context of what he's actually wrapping our minds around to understand. Let alone Second Chronicles 15.2, he says that if you seek me, you'll be found by me. But if you forsake me, I will forsake you. You see, we can't dismiss the context of what was written then when we're taking an Old Testament passage, quote, and bring it into light in the New Testament. God is simply stating here through the author's hand that when you move forward in faith, I will never leave you high and dry. I will never leave you wanting. When you trust me, I will never leave you on that platform alone. That's all he's stating. And I, I hope that that's clear because he's about to even say in another Old Testament quote when he says, so we can confidently say, we can have a confidence in knowing that the Lord has stated he will never leave us high and dry. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? His whole concept that he's wrapping our minds on to understand here. It doesn't matter what man's going to come in opposition towards you. It doesn't matter if there's a 75-foot wall and three series of 75-foot walls all together in Jericho. If I tell you to march around that city seven times and you go off and you do it, they will fall. God is my helper. He is my helper. And he's a good one to have on your side. So the concept is here is to move forward in faith and God will fulfill that. He will bless that. He will honor that. It might not, I'm not talking about when I say bless. I'm not talking about he's going to give you that Lamborghini. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. What I'm talking about is that he will give you that peace that passes understanding. He will give you that joy that will be your strength. The joy of the Lord that is your strength. He will fill you with love that you never knew that is, you know, um, incomprehensible and incorruptible. He will give you these things internally in the spirit that you would not have had in your disobedience. And he will allow things to happen in your life. Walls will come down. Vices will be eradicated in your life. When you step forward in faith and you trust him and you do what you're supposed to do according to his word, he will never fail you. That's all that's being stated. It's not a salvific verse that has anything to do with our salvation, let alone anything, you know, it, it is all about our faithful living towards him in obedience to what he's called us to do and knowing that he will meet us there and will never fail us. He goes on in verse 7, remember your leaders. These are talking about leaders in the Lord. 
He says, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. You know, this this, this has given me some um, complications sometimes over the years as I've studied this out in verse 8, because it almost seems like he throws verse 8 in there of Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it doesn't fit. It's like, what is he trying to say? It's like, he's given us, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the outcome of the way of the faith, and don't be led away by the verse, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what is he saying? And I want to tell you what I, what I believe he's, he's talking about here. The message of Christ, the, the, the word of God that was spoken to us, the gospel, this message of who Christ was, what he did for us, who he is, all that various stuff that is encompassed in the gospel message is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It has never changed. God has always had that plan from the beginning to the foundations of the earth, as, as Ephesians talk about, to send Christ. That was always his plan. The gospel, the good news, has always been in the works from the very beginning of time. And at the appropriate time, at the appointed time, God sent forth the Son, born of a virgin, Right? Born in human flesh, born as flesh. The word became flesh, as John 1 says. And he became that source for us. And this is the good news, right? This is what we proclaim to. That message has never changed and it never will change. Ever. It never will change. Listen to what he talks about in 1 Peter when he says in verse 22, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This, this concept of Jesus Christ, it's, it's not a declaratory statement that stating Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's that the message of Jesus, the message of the Word of God that was given to us as the Word of God became flesh, right? In John 1, it was always about Jesus. It was always about Him, it always is about Him, and it always will be about Him. It's not talking about Jesus being the same yesterday, to, today, and forever, because I can make you a case that He wasn't. You go listen to my, my Hebrews chapter 2 and 4 podcast in which it goes into Philippians 2 and says that he, he made himself nothing. Okay, He did change. He was greater than the angels and then it says that he became like us in every respect and was made lower than the angels. So I could make, you, uh, I could make a case right now, but I've already done it in Hebrews chapter 2 and 4 in the podcast that I've done there. He did change, but the message never has. And I believe that's what he's saying here when he says, consider the outcome of their way of life, meaning that they were persecuted, they were mistreated, they were hated, they were scorned as evil, they were spurned by people, um, all these various things. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith in the midst of it. And I want you to understand, I don't care if you're 2,000 years removed from those days, I don't care what it is. Jesus Christ and his message is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the outcome of those who imitate the life of Christ will always be the same. Please hear me on this. 
Because you might be thinking in your life, well, I'm, I'm not really all that persecuted for my faith in him. Second Corinthians, Second Timothy 3.12 says that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a declaratory statement. That's not one that he says most people. He says anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself says in John 15, he says that I chose you out of this world. I called you out of this world to live like something different, something holy and set apart. And he says if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Why? Because you're not of the world. See, here's the great dilemma of it all. If you're not being persecuted, then that's probably because you are more like the world than you are of Christ. Did you hear me on that? The message of Christ will never change. And the outcome of living that message in your life will never change. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So here's the question. If you're not being persecuted, and I'm not saying search after the persecution. I'm talking about the persecution coming into your life as a result of living for Christ. I'm not not talking about a persecution seeker who tries to find their identity through their persecution. I'm talking about people who live the life of Christ and find their identity in Christ and persecution finds them. There's a big difference because I know people who try to find their identity in being persecuted and think that that makes them like Christ. That's not it at all. That's the cart before the horse type syndrome, right? But if you are not being persecuted for your faith and for the truth of the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ in your life, if you're not being persecuted... Then you have to ask yourself, one, are you desiring to live a godly, set-apart, holy life? Or are you more like the world than you are like Christ? And that's something you have to ask yourself because the reality is, is he's telling us, these leaders who spoke to you the word of God, they were persecuted, they suffered, every single one of them died. They tried to kill John, they couldn't even do it because he had a mission. He had a purpose that he had to remain alive for. They tried to put him in boiling pitch and he came out unscathed. So they had to banish him to the island of Patmos because they couldn't kill the guy. Because he had yet to fulfill of seeing the kingdom come through Christ. But all the others, all the other 11, they died. You can go back and read Fox's Book of the Martyrs and you're going to see persecution was rampant. All throughout the church in those first few hundred years. And then the devil changed his tactic. But persecution remained all throughout time. And that will never change. You want to live like Christ, you will be hated by people. You will be, you will be spurned. You will be scorned. And you will suffer and you will be persecuted. If you're not, then I question if you are desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And trying to imitate him. Because this is what this is saying right here. He goes on, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. That word for strange in the Greek is a word that means um, foreign or an alien. So essentially he's talking about people who are teaching you things that are foreign or alien to the covenant of Christ. Right? And in context here, those going back to the covenant of Moses. He says, don't be led astray by diverse and strange or alien foreign teachings that go against the law of Christ and try to take you back to something else. He says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. 
which have not benefited those devoted to them. That word for foods is the word broma. It means ceremonial articles allowed or forbidden by Jewish law. Uh, it's pretty clear to me. And going into Romans 14, it talks about people who abstain from eating certain foods that God created for us to be received at Thanksgiving. Going into 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, Romans 14 says, you're weak in the faith. You don't understand. You don't understand what the cross has actually purchased for us. And he says, I don't want you to be contentious about it. If they're doing it to honor the Lord, then let them do it. If they don't want to eat pork because they're honoring the Lord and, and maybe they're weak in faith, they don't really understand what the cross has purchased for us and what the new covenant is all about, okay. Don't, don't argue about it. They're doing it to honor the Lord. They're great. Let them do it. Because the kingdom of heaven is not a matter of eating and drinking. That's not what it's about. He says, if somebody wants to observe the Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night sundown, let them observe it. If they're doing it in honor of the Lord, in honor of Christ... That's great. Cool. If they, if they want to do a Sunday, or if they want to count every day as a Sabbath, great. Are they doing it to honor the Lord? Because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If a person does not have the faith to believe it, and they do it anyways, it's sin. If they don't truly believe and understand that pork has now been made clean for us, because it's not about that anymore. It's not about a ritualistic law that's going to forbid us from eating certain meats that God declared to be received with thanksgiving and declared holy through the word of God. If they don't understand that and they eat pork, they're in sin. He says, I don't want you to be led away by diverse and strange teachings, those that are alien, um, foreign to the covenant of Christ. Because those foods that you would eat or that you don't eat, they're not going to strengthen your heart. They're not going to strengthen your soul. That's just a fleshly body that they would or might not. He goes on and he says, we, talking about those who are in Christ, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. He's talking about those who are outside of Christ, particularly those who would be Jews. He said, we have an altar. It's a spiritual altar, and as one that comes through Christ, as 1 Peter 2, uh, 4 talk about, where he says, we are the royal priesthood. We are that holy priesthood, the royal priesthood. And we serve at the altar, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we talk about that in Hebrews 10, where he says that a body he prepared, he will not look on the sacrifice of blood and bull, uh, of goats anymore. He won't look at their blood. He only looks at one blood, and that's the blood of his son. So we who are in Christ, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent and they're devoted to the foods of allowed or not allowed with the Jewish, Jewish law and they're doing the sacrifices. He says, we have an altar to eat from that, you know what? They don't. And he says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He says, look, guys, I went outside the city. That's where the rejects were. That's where the scum was. That's where the, the outcasts were. And that's where I went to go sanctify the people. By my own blood. And listen to what he says that we need to do. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach 
that he endured. Guys, I can't, I can't stress this enough. Your mission in this life as a servant of Jesus Christ is to not have your best life now. It's to not get the things of this world and have your good things. Didn't he give us a message about that with the rich man and Lazarus where he says the rich man in this life, he says you received your good things and Lazarus is bad. But now he's comforted and you're in torment. In fact, James 5 tells us that the things that you store up in this life will be evidence against you on that last day. And they will eat your flesh like fire. He says, look, as you're going to give an account... And our job is to not stay inside where all the, those people who are accepted and who are valued and looked high upon. Our job is not to stay in there. Our job is to go to Jesus who is outside the gate and he was outside the camp. And as he talked about, what did he say with Moses? Where it says, um, by faith Moses when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. He says it's not that this is a humanitarian effort that you're just going to all the, the people who are the lessers you know considered it in a, in a caste system. You're just going to the people who aren't as privileged no, 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 that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about going to Jesus and bearing the reproach that the world is going to give to us as a result of that and being mistreated with the body of Christ. So what, didn't he say that in, in Hebrews 13, 3? Where he says, those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He says, I need you to go be holy and set apart from the world. And whatever's going to come from the world, however they're going to hate you and however they're going to scorn you and they're going to exclude you and revile you and spurn you as evil on the count of the Son of Man as Luke 6 talks on, you endure that together. You be a body that's unified in the Spirit and in the mission of Christ, you do it together. And I, I, don't, I don't see that happening, at least in the church in America. I see many churches out there, many Christians out there who they just want to kind of get their best life now and they're living this temporal world. I mean, people don't have time to live for Jesus now. People don't have time to read their Bible. People don't have time because we are so busy chasing after the things of this world that we have lost the sense of what our mission actually is in this life. Therefore, we're not going to Jesus outside the camp. We're staying inside the camp where all the, the privileged people are. But we're missing Christ. This is what he says in Luke 21, starting in verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all those all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, you better watch your heart to make sure that it's not weighed down with the dissipation, the drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And you miss your purpose. Because if we're not going to Jesus outside the camp, if we're, if we're too concerned about our, our best life now, if we're too concerned about the cares of this life and the things of this world, and our minds are fixated on those things, we don't have time to read the Word, we don't have time to fellowship, we don't have time to go to church, you know, or we'll go whenever it's convenient for us. And you're missing it. 
And you definitely aren't with Jesus. You're not abiding with him because he's outside the camp. He's where the rejects are. And he gets the scorn of the world. And as John 15 says, he gets the hatred of the world. Not the adoration. And so he goes, he he goes to continue to reinforce this point where he says, For here in this world we have no lasting city. This is not our city. This is not our kingdom. This is not our home. And it's high time that we began to realize that as the church. This is not our home. We are in a mission for God to get glory from our lives so that we can fill heaven's, um, so that we can fill heaven with as many people as we can who would come to know the gospel. He says, for here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. That's where our affections are. That's where our mind is. And if it's not, you need to repent. I'm not afraid to say that word. It's it's a Christian cuss word today in many churches. I mean, don't say repent. You might offend somebody. I'm sorry. It was the first word that Jesus started to declare to the people of God in Israel when he first started his ministry. And it's the last word he declared to the people of God as the church in Revelation 3, the very end of it. Repent. He says, through him then. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That means it's going to cost you to praise him. He says that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. For you to confess and to praise him and to acknowledge him before men, it is going to cost you. It's a sacrifice. Don't think it's going to be easy. He goes on, he says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It should cost us to confess Jesus. If it doesn't cost us to confess Jesus, then I'm going to tell you, you're probably not in him. It should cost us to confess him. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Break this down real quick. This is a term called submission. And it's one that is another Christian cuss word today along with repent. People don't like to hear the term submission in a biblical concept in which it says the command or the rule is wives are supposed to submit to your husbands. We're supposed to submit to governing authorities in the land. We're supposed to submit to our bosses at work. We're supposed to submit to the word of God. We don't like to hear that. We like to define our own terms. But that's not Christianity. That's what he says here. If you've got leaders over you, and this is particular to elders. All right? This is particular to elders. Obey them. There's really like no way around it. Obey them. Like I, I get if they're asking you to do something that goes against the word of God. Well, then no, you must obey God rather than man. I totally understand that. But most elders, they're not out there asking you to do things that are sinful. Most of them might ask you to do things that go against your preference. And there's a big difference between something which violates the word of God and something which violates your own wants, which is what a preference is. He says, you need to obey them. This is a rule. This is a command that he gives to anyone who says that they're a Christian. You need to be under elders. If you're not under elders, 
then you're outside of God's prescribed order and you don't have anyone who's watching over your soul. What did he say here? Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. They will give an account. As elders, they will give an account for how they lead. But you will as well for how you submit it. If the elders ask you to do something, you do it. Even if it goes against your preference. Man, I can't even tell you how, how difficult of a season it was for many elders when it came down to wearing masks. So many elders had no idea what to do with this. They studied, they prayed, they consulted with other people. And, and some of them came with different outcomes. Wear the mask. Some said don't wear the mask. And the reality is, it was a difficult season for many elders who are trying their best to govern God's church, the best of what they saw fit according to the word. And what made it the worst is that so many people had different preferences and opinions on what they should do. And their submission to the elders was not part of it. So as a result, you had elders who had people leaving their churches because of wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Guys, can I just tell you, that is so far Away from a biblical blueprint. I know of story after story after story. And I even experienced some of it in my own fellowship. You have people who are so dead set against wearing a mask. And they were wanting to flip the middle finger up to the government saying, screw you. I'm not going to wear a mask. You can't make me do it. I'm not going to live in fear. And it's like, really? Is that really humility and love? Let alone if your elders asking you to do it. I know of elders who they literally wept over people who left their church because they would not wear a mask. And I know vice versa. Some were saying you don't have to wear a mask and the people left their church because they said no, we all should wear masks. It's, it's ludicrous and absurd. The insubordination that goes on in the church today. When love and humility would lay down their preferences for the sake of the authority that God has placed us under. <clears throat> this is a command. Obey your leaders. Those who are over you in the Lord, those who are the elders in the church, obey them. For they are keeping watch over your soul as those who have to give an account. Now, if you read the NIV, you're going to see that this last part seems more to do with your responsibility towards them. And I would agree. <clears throat> I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense for it to be referencing the, the leaders to say, let the leaders do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. I can see some applicability to it, but what makes more sense in the directive of what he's stating is you are the one who's supposed to obey. You are the one who is supposed to make sure that you are um, obeying and submitting to your leaders. So I think that it, it, it then would make more sense for the context to then um, go into your responsibility to do this with joy. Not the leaders to lead you with joy, but for you to submit with joy. Listen to what he says. Let them do this with joy. I, I would say that this should be like more so of stating in context and like the NIV would bring up. You need to do this with joy. You need to submit to them and obey them with joy and not with grumbling or groaning. 
for that would be of no advantage to you. Meaning you're just making their, their job harder. Man, when, when, they're, when they're saying, here's what the Lord's leading me to do, and here's what the Word of God says, and here's what we're going to do as a fellowship because of what the Word of God says, and you grumble and complain, and you, you, you don't have any kind of a joy in your obedience to that, all you're doing is making their life harder. You're bringing undue stress in their life because you are trying to go off of your preferences of what you think rather than trusting what they believe God is telling them through His Word. I'm not saying you can't question. But what I'm saying is a submissive heart will obey. The same way in a husband and a wife. And I can't tell you how many times over the last 15 years of being being an elder over a fellowship, how many times I've had men who have come into the fellowship who they did not want to submit. They did not want to honor the elders, the leadership. They didn't want to honor the leadership. They wanted to backbite, they wanted to complain, they wanted to groan, but then if their wives would have acted the same way towards them, man, they would have thrown an all-out fit. This concept of, of submission is one we need to get back to as the church. Because I'm going to tell you, just flat out, we stink at it as the church in America. Whether it comes to governing authorities in the nation, who they're asking you to wear a mask and stay six feet away from each other in public gatherings? Come on, guys. Is there anything in the, in the word that says, <clears throat> any rule that says, thou shalt not wear a mask and thou shalt make sure you're within six feet? Come on. You can throw away whatever justified reason you want to. The reality is the word of God says, count others more significant than yourself. And as Romans 13 says, obey your leader's The reality is we stink at submission. Wives don't want to submit to their own husbands. People don't want to submit to governing authorities. We don't want to submit to our bosses at work. We don't want to submit to to elders in the church. And yet, we're breaking from God's hierarchy and thus ensues chaos. And that's what we're seeing. Division and strife all among us. All because we don't want to abide in God's blueprint. And I could go on this topic... For a long, long time, the things that I've seen, both in my own personal ministry and in the ministry of other men that I feel for. He goes on in verse 18, pray for us. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I love that part. He says, I am sure of... The fact that I have a clear conscience before God. I don't know of anything in my life right now that goes against Him. Isn't that an amazing statement? Can you say that? And we like to always give justified excuses as to why we can't ever live like Jesus. But here, these guys, man, they said, on my conscience, I don't know of anything that I'm doing wrong right now. That's, a, that's an amazing statement to come in. It wasn't just one author That's stating this. He said we. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience. Desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this. In order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. There will never be another covenant. There will be, never be a greater blood. This is the blood that trumps them all. This is the covenant that trumps them all. The law of Moses has nothing on the law of Christ. 
The covenant that God made with his people in Israel in the old covenant has nothing compared to the covenant that is with Christ and his people. That is what Hebrews is stating. Christ is supreme on every and in every level. He says, may the God of peace, and he goes and states all these various things that God accomplished. He says, then equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him would be glory forever and ever. Amen. Anything you do in your life is only pleasing to God if it's done through Jesus Christ. And God will equip you with everything that you need to do his will. Everything. Doesn't matter what it is. He will equip you. If you need patience in your ministry, he'll give you the patience. If you need boldness in your ministry, he'll give you the boldness. If you need finances for your ministry, he'll give you the finances for your ministry as long as it's his ministry. As long as it's his will. You're trying to build your big cathedral as a, as a, as a, um, almost as an idol or an astra pole, if you will, of what you have accomplished. God ain't going to give you that. Satan will. Satan doesn't care if you build a big cathedral as long as you're not preaching the truth. God is going to give you the finances that you need and it will be in his timing. He will give you the finances that you need. And sometimes man can hinder that. You, we might not always think about that, but I was studying and talking about it with the kids the other day about how the prince of Persia, Michael, was actually um, wrestling and, and fighting against the prince of Persia. And it says that he withstood him. And Daniel, in the meantime, is praying for God to, to respond to him for 21 days. He's or 20 or 21 days. He's literally praying, and there's no answer. There's nothing. And finally, Michael comes to him and gives him an answer. And he's like, what took you so long? And I'm paraphrasing the account. And Michael's like, hey, I had to take care of this stuff with the prince of Persia before I could come to you. And he was withstanding me. He wasn't accepting. He wasn't doing what I was asking him to do. So it took me a little bit longer. In the same way, sometimes when people aren't doing what they're supposed to, sometimes God is actually handcuffed to give you what you need because that's the person he wants to use. That's the people group he wants to use. That's the people who should be used. And sometimes when they're not being used, God eventually just uses somebody else. So we can actually handicap what God's wanting to do and the timing he's wanting to do it. He says that God will equip you with everything that you need to do his will. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, which is the, the Greek word paraklesis. It means imploration, hortation, or solace. It's something in which he says, I am, I am giving you a firm warning, a firm encouragement. For I've written to you briefly. And, and the funny thing is, you dissect Hebrews. There is so much meat in Hebrews. So much. 13 chapters that the author gives to us. And it is nothing but just intense meat. There's very little milk stuff in here. It's meat. It's deep stuff. It's the stuff that he's given like severe warnings about to the people. It's stuff that people in the church today don't even like to talk about. And he says, and I wrote to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. In summarizing all of this, the author gives us a list of rules. Things that we need to implement in the church. 
things that we need to do in all the churches of the saints. And it's on the heels of all the stuff that he's talking about, the centrality of Christ and how Christ is more supreme than the law of Moses. He's more supreme than Moses himself. He's more supreme um, than the angels. And he's been given the name because he earned it. The name that's above all names. He earned it. And so uh, I hope that this has been a blessing to you. I hope that you've gone through here. There's been things that have sparked um, your interest and have um, convicted you, have um, challenged you and given you new ideas to study through and to understand. But ultimately, I hope that this series over Hebrews has led you closer to Christ, has given you a passion to know more of his word. Because let me just tell you, you will not grow closer to Christ outside of growing deeper in his word. I'll say it again. You will not grow closer to Christ outside of growing deeper in his word. And so, uh, as the author ends it here with grace be with all of you, I pray that God's grace would be with you as you seek to do his will, as you seek to honor him in all that you do, knowing that God will equip you for everything that you need to do in order to accomplish his will for your life in accordance with his word. Make sure that you are following the rules because without following the rules that Christ gives to us, there will be a very um, big hindrance on your relationship with him. And so, anyways, if you have an idea or thought or what you might want to go over on our next podcast series, this is ending our Hebrews one. And so right now, I don't necessarily have a direction on, on the next one to do. I'd love to hear from you of what you think, uh, whether it be topical or whether it be something in which is just another book that we can go through together. Um, I hope you guys are doing well in the Lord and that he is using you and you are allowing him to be used, that you are abiding in him and that he is abiding in you in a way that honors and glorifies and represents Christ the way that he needs to be. Y'all be blessed.